Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. How many times have you heard, like, I thought we decided that, right? Every day of my life. I thought we decided that. Good God. Let's put that to bed. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, nerds. Yes. On today's episode, we're going to talk about governance, and in particular, participatory governance, consent-based governance. But before we get into that and make all those key decisions, let's check in. It's going to be a particular kind of nerdiness, one that uh, we all love. Up. It's going to be our <laughs> flavor of nerd talk today. Okay, let's do a check-in round. So we just dropped an episode recently on Jedi work, and it is on all of our minds, in all of our feeds, in all of our communities. It's about freaking time. So Aaron, our check-in round question for today is, uh, what have you done lately to contribute to a more just society or confront your own privilege. <laughs> Put me on the spot. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Um, a few things. So interestingly, in my own neighborhood in the last 24 to 48 hours, there was an incident where a white woman uh, was verbally attacking a black man who was taking pictures in the neighborhood. And it was caught on video by another young woman who was basically objecting to it the whole time. And it popped all the way up to national news. And then uh, the woman who did it was sort of unapologetic in the in the public square. So there was a huge protest in our park last night. And so we scooted up there and participated and went right over to this street where this happened. And then ultimately right in front of this woman's house and made voices heard about what kind of neighborhood we want to live in. So that's like the very recent stuff, in addition to doing a lot of my own reading and donating and all the more passive stuff. So yeah, it's like happening. So one of my self-care routines is that I listen to this uh, witch do a collective Sunday tarot reading on my drive back from the lake, usually on Monday morning or sometimes on Tuesday morning. And I say that because um, this week she was talking about what's going on in the world. And she was like, the one thing we can be like quite grateful for as white people who are trying to become better allies is that racists now are just not afraid to show themselves. Like we used to have to go ferret them out. And now they're like that woman that you're describing who are just like, no, it's me. I'm a racist. <laughs> so, you know, it makes it a little bit easier to know. Um, though distressing other ways. So for me, a couple of things. One thing that I've been diving further into is understanding more about white supremacy culture. So Sharon Ball, who was on our recent episode, pointed to work by Kenneth Jones and Tama Okun. And I have just found the reason that it's like capturing my interest is because 
of how much about it to me as a white woman doesn't immediately light up as being racist, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like perfectionism or like sense of urgency, like these things that to me are just like the air that I breathe inside (laughs) companies. And so I'm like particularly honed in on it because it's so surprising and like it's challenging for me in a good way. It's challenging for me to like fully grok what that means in terms Mm -hmm. of racism, but also it feels deeply right. Like it feels deeply like the things that they're pointing out are like the worst things about organizations. So that plus standard donation things that I've, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show, but one of the things that I've really um, tuned into is changing my donation strategy from being just about national organizations to doing like state level community level and national contribution, which mm-hmm. I had never thought about before, but I do that now. And the other thing that I'm doing is, I mean, if I get accepted, I just um, applied to be a part of a group coaching cohort for non-Black women by Dr. Kaday. It's like a three-session workshop to just learn more about privilege and allyship and things like that. So if I don't get accepted to this cohort, I will just keep applying. And hopefully she'll take me sometime. Eventually, you'll get it. Yeah. All right. Thanks. So for our listeners, asking that question, which I've been doing both in ready meetings and in client meetings, is not meant to actually put people on the spot or shame them, though some people might feel shame. It's just a really easy way to like share ideas about what we can be doing right now. And I've actually found both in my client organization and at the ready, it is quite energizing for people to be able to share the ways in which they're trying to learn. And it's become a really like easy way of swapping resources. So as a check-in round question, maybe give it a shot. And it's energizing to hear as well what others are doing because it feels like, oh, stuff's happening. Things are happening. So today's topic is participatory governance, not just, you know, dictatorial or other types of governance we're going to talk about. (laughs) We're going to talk about the kind that we believe in, and we're going to talk about what's great about it, what's terrible about it, why I hated it so much when I first started working with The Ready, and why other people hate it. Spoiler alert, it's because of my fucking ego. Anyway, let's start, Aaron, with a little trip down history lane. (laughs) Talk to us about governance. Where where did it come from? Where did we get these ideas? So as you said, there's there's a long tradition of autocratic governance, which, you know, originated with royal people and kings and, you know, leaders of militaristic tribes and, you know, basically the the strongman rule, uh, which which still persists to this day, but that was kind of the only way to play for a while in many cultures. And then more recently, we have fallen in love, I think, a little bit as a culture with consensus. And I mean that in the loosest possible way, like everybody loves it. Everybody's touched it. uh, CYA or cover your ass governance, which is like a camel is a horse designed by committee, right? We all touch and mold the idea until we feel like it's safe for us and won't come back and bite us. And that kind of consensus is, is fairly toxic. uh, Race to the bottom. Yeah. And then frankly, I mean, if we look at our political systems, we also have uh, democratic rule by voting, which is basically the tyranny of the majority, right? Or in this case, when you have an electoral college, the tyranny of the minority, where some number of people vote for something and half of them or roughly half of them get their way and the other half get the opposite of their way, Mm -hmm. uh, which again is fairly tyrannical, even though it's something we really believe in as a country, it's not really the best way to do that. So there are these models that are not working well. The model that is working well that you 
want to talk about and I want to talk about today is is more based on consent. It's it's participatory governance based on consent. And the idea of consent, or at least how we define it in this process, goes all the way back to the Quakers. So the Quaker religious tradition developed a long time ago a way of processing decisions as a community in circle that was incredibly powerful, where someone would you know, propose an issue or a topic, and it would be discussed with facilitation, where the facilitator would note where there's alignment and where there's tension or disagreement and nurture that and pull that out and draw that out. And then over time, they would come to a solution that everybody could live with. And there was even the ability for a member of the community to block the the progress on the decision and in some quaker communities even one person could block a decision for the whole community until Mm -hmm. they felt like it was safe uh to move forward with so that's the origin of this model that then was rebirthed in sociocracy by some folks who were creating one of the first you know sociocratic schools um in in the netherlands and that was in you know the mid 20th century so now we're up to i don't know 70 years ago and the school really brought this idea of consent-based decision-making and refined it, you know, even further into life. And then later than that, I want to say maybe in the 70s or 80s, um, a, a person who went to that school, a man named uh, Gerard Endenberg, he brought it into his business context. So now mm. we had consent-based decision-making where it was, is this safe to try? Can you live with this type decision-making by the body? Uh, by the community inside a business, which happened to be an electrical engineering firm. And that was really the the jumping off point for it to, to fission out into a whole bunch of different business contexts, at first as sociocracy, and then later as different forms of consent-based decision-making and even holacracy, which we know today has kind of refined the process even further and made it, you know, particularly specific. So that's the that's the lineage. It's probably, you know, you could spend an hour tracing it more carefully, but that's the that's the fast version. Nice. Today I learned. I definitely <laughs> didn't know 50% of that. That's cool. So let's talk about the beginning part before you go govern something with your humans <laughs> in your circle of consenters. There's so many pieces of this to pull apart, but yeah. let's start as we often do from tension. So mm-hmm. one of the things that I love about participatory governance is is thusly. It is that in a bureaucratic system where there is an inevitably high degree of learned helplessness, the idea of noticing your own personally held tension and creating some kind of proposal to address it that is not necessarily linear, it's not necessarily cause and effect. It is what you notice and what you believe could begin to address it and then orienting toward that versus just group admiration of persistent problems is like such a big early shift in self-management before you even have the governance meeting, before you even have a consent-based decision process, just saying to a group of executives who are sitting around bitching about something, does anyone have a proposal? What do you propose? Is like, it's like turning on a light. Just that thing. <laughs> I think that's right. Because we've been trained in the more like autocratic hierarchy to look up for answers and to mm-hmm. look up for ideas. And what's hilarious about that is if everybody's trained to do that, we look all the way up. All the way up. And then the person at the top is like, why is everybody looking at me? 
Yeah. Yeah. It's very funny that like that is the, that's the reflex. That's the muscle. And then when you say, well, why don't we just do something about it? You know, that is, is revolutionary. It is for, for a few reasons. One is in more progressed organizations or in more progressed leadership ethos, I see people sort of go halfway from, I will just determine the solution or I'll determine what's next. And I will tell you what progress looks like to you guys sense and I'll respond. So you tell me what the problems are and then I'll come up with a solution, which will never be satisfactory to all of you. And you'll just continue to be feeling dissatisfied and holding the tension. And, and then the, the, the fuller expression is it's my attention and it's my proposal. And what's great about that is the level of true agency that it creates. And also, and I speak from personal experience here, the number of things that you are too lazy to create a proposal for, and then you just shut your mouth about, which is a real experience that I have. I'm like, I could do something about that. I don't feel like it. Apparently, it's not actually that big of a problem for me, because if it was, (laughs) I have a way to fix it. it. So I guess I'm just going to like live with it. And it's not really worth my energy. And like, that is also a really significant part of self-organization. Yeah, to sort of confront yourself and be like, what am I actually willing to spend time and energy on versus what bothers me? Yes. Because those are two completely different things. Completely. So there's that aspect of the proposing. And then the other thing that I kind of want to immediately zero in on is because then I think we can get to process and who's in the room and things like that. Let's talk about the concept of safe to try. So I'm Mm -hmm. sort of bookending. The proposing is the very beginning and the consenting is the very end. And then we'll fill in the meat in the sandwich. But, (laughs) but like part of creating a good proposal is creating a proposal through the lens of what is safe to try, not Mm -hmm. creating a monolithic all encompassing plan, but creating a proposal that addresses a present tension in the present that is likely safe to try. So maybe could you just talk about how you define safe to try? Yeah. And I think that it's, it's worth noting that this is the, this is one aspect of this that is more modern, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the origin of this stuff is all about consent, which is basically, I can live with this. I can live with it. I can live with this, right? Maybe I love it, maybe I don't, but it's not it's not going to do harm that I can't live with. And so that idea of consent has quite a rich history here. I think the idea of the impermanence of it and our ability to be agile and to be trying and experimenting and looping and learning is, you know, is, it's not that it wasn't present in the past, but it's much more potent in the process now, which is this idea of like, not only am I asking you, is it safe, but I'm also asking, can we try it? Right. And those are two different things. And so to me, the definition of safe to try is does the thing, if we do it, either create some kind of harm or destabilization or stress on the system that I believe in my gut is likely to really hurt us in a way that's going to be hard to recover from? Do I believe that the nature of the decision is irreversible, something that'll be really hard to walk back if we learn that it was a bad call? Do I have, you know, some experience or some data on what what it looks like to make a decision like this and how that's bad, how that serves those other two ideas? Or is it just something that I don't have a good feeling about or that I don't like or that I don't love or that I think could be better? And all those latter things are, they're lovely and, you know, feedback is is welcome. 
but they don't cross that bar of like not safe to try. Mm-hmm. And and frankly, when we let go of the idea that we have to live with things forever, then it's so much easier to just be like, ah, shit, let's just, let's do it for a week. Let's do it for a month. Let's do it for three months. And if we hate it or it does, you know, some small harm, we'll just get rid of it or we'll change it. Like it's, yeah. it, we so are in love with this idea of everything we decide is forever. Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly where that comes from in the human psychology, but it is, it's pervasive and, and challenging. <laughs> it is. And part of the orientation towards safe to try that is super, super powerful is what you're talking about. So staying in the present rather than um, objecting or consenting based on future tension. So just Hashtag sitting in tension. the reality that we don't actually know what is going to happen as a result of trying this. So rather than doing three revs to try to have it be future proof, let's actually yeah. just try it and get data. Yep. That's really valuable. Yep. And the other piece is that this is a really significant part of leaders letting go. So we talk very often and in our episode about leading transformation, we talked a lot about what it looks like to begin to seed power into your organization and begin to have true participation. And the safe to try concept, whether you're talking specifically about governance or you're just in conversation with somebody who has an idea, is a really great way for leaders to be able to be like, you know what? It's not what I would do. Mm-hmm. And... It's not what I'm going to do because it's not my work. They're proposing it and they're going to do it. So maybe this is a moment for me to let something go. And I, I have moments like that. Sharon and I just had a conversation on Monday. We were talking about hiring in Europe. And Sharon was like, what about this? What about this? What about this? And they were all great questions. And very quickly, we were both like, yeah, but I mean, it's safe to try. (laughs) And the reality is like, this is work that like, we're not doing ourselves. It -hmm. is work that someone else is proposing to do. And so it's just, it's those moments of saying like, I don't actually have to be grippy and controlling about this because I have a better idea because my better idea that doesn't get done because I'm not going to do it is not as good as this person's idea who has energy and is ready to roll. Yeah, totally. And and I love, you know, the the connections here to the learning ecology because not only is your idea potentially better or potentially worse, but none of that really matters because the person who's doing it has to have their own learning experience. And if they just do your thing blindly and it works or it doesn't, they don't learn as much as if they do what their instinct is telling them to do, what their mind is telling them to do and then live in the in the consequences of those decisions. And when we talk about building capability and competency rather than just having perfect execution, that's what we're talking about. Right. Like, go do, go do, go make a mess. And when you figure out what, you know, what didn't work, then you're going to be better next time. And three revolutions from now, you both won't even need to be having a conversation about what's happening in Europe because Europe right. learned something. Right. Exactly. And this is a tiny tangent. <laughs> it's really, it's going to be so small, but One of the things that I've learned about doing this work over the last like 10 years or so that is, I I just wish like I could give every human being like a pill and they would just know Mm -hmm. this without having to do this for 10 years because it took me literally (laughs) that long to learn is um, judging a thing without experiencing that thing is usually not a great idea. 
And yeah. how many times have you had the experience of like, you explain something like a governance meeting and the mm-hmm. client goes like, well, I don't think uh, we need to do that part. And I don't think that we really need this part. And like, we'll do it, but we don't want to use that template. And, and it's like, I completely understand why that's the instinct. I have it too. And you have no idea what you're talking about until you try anything. And like, Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many times, like whenever I, whenever I found liberating structures, I can't tell you how many times I would like read the facilitation notes and be like, that seems stupid. And then I would Mm -hmm. try it and be like, oh, that's dope. That thing works. And it's like, you have to, if you want to do participatory change, you ha- you have to begin to learn the lesson that judging the thing gets you basically nothing. Yeah, experiencing I the agree. thing or letting someone else experience the thing and learn gets us progress. But again, not only is that a problem, but it's a problem we intentionally develop in leaders. Yeah, that's like right. Like the whole that's job like our, of the leader job. is, yeah, <laughs> review know. the thing and critique it. Right, like that's right. the whole job. Right, move, and so of move course, commas around. Yeah. And so when we look at anything, of course, we're always like, all right, my job is to tear this apart. (laughs) How can I, how can I add value? And I'm using air quotes. How can I add value by tearing this apart? As opposed to how can I add value by experiencing something and having an embodied learning that I can then turn into an iteration or a practice? That's like a whole different animal. But can you imagine... Can you imagine like going to a yoga class and the instructor's like, do downward dog. And you're like, you know what? I'm thinking, <laughs> let's not do it that way though. Let's do it a different, like we don't do that in certain spaces, but we do it at work all the time. Or can you imagine going to yoga class and an instructor saying that and you being like, why don't you show me and I'll tell you if I think it's going to help me. <laughs> like what? No, no, thank you. So now that I've talked about all the bread and none of the meat, mm-hmm. Maybe want to walk us through like from tension to no objections in the kind of standard governance that we practice and teach clients, which is a bit of a mashup, at least in in my practice, between sociocracy, holacracy, and my own rainbow sprinkles. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think we're talking about sociocratic or dynamic governance and holocratic governance here. And the steps are more or less that somebody or somebody's make a proposal for something that we should do or change in strict process. Usually that means we're making a proposal around a policy or a role or a working agreement of some kind. In less strict forums, it could be a strategic decision or like a, you know, let's, let's merge with this other company or not. And certainly in the Quaker tradition, it could have been about anything, right? Any kind of decision. So there's a proposal on the table. We should do this thing. Then uh, a series of rounds. So by the participants, which, you know, usually are roughly team sized. So let's say seven plus or minus two, sometimes more, sometimes less. They uh, ask questions. So questions are asked, questions are answered by the proposer. The questions are to clarify, to understand the proposal better, not to tear it apart, not to have a reaction disguised as a question. So if you, if you use a sentence that could be ended with a period, but then you raise your voice at the end, that's not a real question. And the proposer answers when they know the answers. And when they don't know the answers, they don't know the answers. One of the things that's nice about this process through that step and every other step is nobody is accountable for pretending to know everything. Mm-hmm. So in almost every other decision process, you're making the big pitch to the leaders or to the boss and they ask questions. And if you don't know every answer, 
get the hell out of here because it's right. going to be then a no. Right, you didn't do your job. Yeah, and this is like, no, 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 no. We all accept that there are things that are unknown, both by the proposer and by the rest of us. And so that's not our job here. One note on question round is if you are the proposer, be taking notes on how the questions and the things that you do and don't know should actually end up in your proposal. Yep. Yep, absolutely. I think a good note-taking practice uh, is really helpful for a good proposer, especially because the process is somewhat, I mean, as it's called, dynamic. It's somewhat dynamic. So you're going to be moving and shaking and making changes and trying to get something done in the room. And for those of us that don't always think as well on our feet, it can be helpful to have mm-hmm. to have a record of what you're hearing and what it's making you think about. So questions are asked, questions are answered. Sometimes they're not answered, right? I don't know. Then we move on to a round of reactions. In this round, uh, everyone at the table or in the circle offers reactions, good or bad, to the proposer or proposers. And reactions are everything from I love it to I hate it to here's how you can make it better. And the better reactions tend to be very constructive like that. So here, here's a way that I would adjust what you're proposing specifically um, to make it better. And it's worth noting here that done well, I think this process often relies on a written proposal. Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to say, like, I think we should go out for lunch and have sandwiches. That's pretty easy to hold in your head. But if someone's proposing a two-page maternity policy, that is like, you don't want to be, you know, yeah. remembering. No one try this not in a shared document. It's just going to yeah, be a hot just, mess. It's so easy to get in a Google Doc or a box note or something and yeah. see what you're talking about. So, uh, yeah, so reactions are offered. Importantly, again, breaking the normal like status theater, uh, the proposer does not react to the reactions right away. So if somebody says, you know, you missed this important thing, they don't get to say, no, I didn't and defend it. It's just listen and receive. So we're listening to reactions. We're taking notes, like you said earlier. And one of the other uh, tips that I give reactors is if the proposal, as you have read it so far, doesn't feel safe to try to you it's great in your reaction to give direction on what would make it safe to try. And because doing this in the moment dynamically is quite difficult at first for proposers who are learning, um, where you as a reactor can give like really specific wording guidance and be like, instead of this, I would say this and like drop it in the chat or like make it a comment in the Google doc to make their lives easier. Like, To me, that both um, puts us all kind of on a level playing field of like, we are really in this together trying to make it better. And also, it just makes the proposer's job a little bit easier. Rather than trying to like reword on the fly to respond to what they think you meant, I think specificity in reactions is a gift to the proposer. And actually, that that highlights a theme in the whole process that I want to do a minor tangent on before we proceed, which is... The, the process is an algorithm for progress, for safe progress. It's not an algorithm for perfection. And so when we move from playing the old game, which is how do I prevent error? How do I ensure perfection to the new game, which is let's keep things moving and learning and looping, then it, you just play differently. And one of the ways you play differently, to your point, is like, how can I be helpful to the process? Like, how can I actually help ensure that this moves forward today, as opposed to how can I shut this down today? Yes. <laughs> which is usually the MO of most people in the room when they're looking at, you know, any key decisions. Anything like, how can new. I ruin this? It's just yeah. like, how can let's I stop kill it. This? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it's different. Like I, when we show up to governance to a large extent, I have to make sure that I, I gear shift in my brain. And sometimes I don't and I regret it to be like, my job is not to stop this. Right. It's just not. My job is to make sure something moves forward today that is safe to try. 
Yes. And so that's, yeah, it's a different role to play. Okay, so we have a proposal. We have heard some questions. We've heard some answers. We've heard some I don't knows. We have had a whole round of reactions from everyone where they each had their own airtime to offer ways to make it better or ways to make it safe. And that's all been received by the proposer and hopefully captured in notes. Now there's a chance for the proposer to make some choices. So it's possible that at this point in the process, they want to take the proposal back to the lab. Maybe they heard something that, you know, scared them or made them interested or made them curious and they're not ready to proceed. It's equally possible that they hear all those questions and reactions and are thinking, I'm just going to move forward with it exactly the way it was. And the most likely scenario is that there are a few things that they want to tweak. And so this is a chance for those changes, for those clarifications of saying, all right, look, I heard you. Here's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to change this to six months and I'm going to bump this up and I'm going to take this line out. So this is that moment where it gets an edit uh, on the fly, which again is great because normally it takes two weeks before we see it again after the bad pitch. That's right. And instead it's like, no, in the room, let's just make it safe so we can go learn something and go do something. So we do uh, we do those changes. And now the proposal is back on the table for the group. So the the next step is the objections step or the consent step, depending on what process you're looking at. And it's basically like asking that question, is this safe to try now that we've understood it, now that we've reacted to it, now that we've edited it, it's our property as a community, is it a safe to try proposal or decision? And so each person has the consent right to say, uh, I don't object, it's safe to try, I, I think we should proceed, or I do object, I see a reason why this is going to do a level of harm or is going to be you know, a, a level of irreversible that we need to address here and now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so everybody does that. And, you know, in, I don't know, five out of 10 times, it just goes all the way around and, and everybody's good with it and we can proceed. And that means that it's a living thing. It's a living agreement that we can now go play with, check back in on, iterate at a future session if we choose to, like it's, it's basically public property that is alive and open to iteration in the future. And if there is an objection, we get to what I think is the killer app of the whole process. Which you think is objection test is the killer app? Not the test, but the requirement that they make it safe. Oh, all right. Yeah. I dig it. So yeah. So we've never talked I mean, about this. No, yeah. So I think the, the objection test is sort of what we've been teasing at, which is like the facilitator has the right all the way back, honestly, to the to the Quaker tradition to be like, hey, you have an objection. Let's figure out if it's a real objection or if you're just being an ass. Yeah, And they get to push and probe that by, by asking questions about the nature of the harm, the irreversibility, you know, where's this all coming from and kind of do some sense making around that, which is super cool and important. And actually like where I personally have wriggled a lot and where I've seen a lot of clients struggle and wriggle. And it's fun to like confront your demons in that moment. But no, what I'm talking about, that I think is the killer app is if you have an objection that is a valid objection, the next step in the process is not that the proposer is kicked out of the room and shamed forever, which is how the old model works, right? If there's something stupid about the proposal, it's go back to the drawing board and come back in four months. Um, In this process, the person with the objection has to make an edit to the proposal that would make it safe to try. And to me, that is just the game changer because the person is very happy and I think in many cases very smug about their objection and how right. they how they know better. But then when it comes time to actually make it safe, make it better, it's often the case that people have no ideas. They're like, why? Uh, uh, it's too expensive. Okay, cool. How much would be not too much? Uh, right. And then there's this like total stall, you know, short circuit. 
Um, but it is, it, it is a progress based algorithm. And so that means like, yeah, maybe a hundred K is too much. Maybe it's 10, maybe it's five, maybe it's one, but we have to do something because mm -hmm. the core premise of this whole process is that each member of the community is a, a person who is perceiving reality both with and for the community. And so if we ignore attention completely, if we don't, if we don't spend this time with it, if we don't find a way to move forward on it, we can miss really important stuff. Mm -hmm. And so we might miss, I mean, to the point of our check-in round, we might miss a voice that we don't normally listen to and some inequity in our system. We might miss a strategic opportunity that nobody else saw, like an Amazon Web Services that you know sure. a bookstore should not be doing. Like there's a whole bunch of things that we miss when we don't listen to those little voices. And so this process is like, no, 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 F that. Let's listen to the little voice. And if you think it's unsafe, make it safe. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that's that's the last step. And if they, for whatever reason, just can't figure that out, if they can't find a way to make it safe. They often it can't is, early on in doing yeah, that yeah. rights, to be clear. Learning that muscle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> then uh, then sometimes we have to take a knee and let the, let the process pause. And the folks that were sitting with that objection, that proposal can go have coffee or wine or beer or something stronger and find a way through. But I would say, I don't know, seven or eight times out of 10 in a group that has done this for a while, uh, we can just make a quick edit and and move on. In many cases, I think we see the edit that we'll need the yeah. moment we look at the proposal. Yeah. So, you know, so that's it. And then now that that uh, formerly objected proposal is consented to by both the objector and the proposer, and then re-consented to by everyone else quickly. And we move forward. Decision made. Yeah. I think that the point about the emergence of what is actually safe to try is is right. And I would add that it takes time to be able to get out of your own ego enough to look at the proposal on its merits rather than in terms of the way in which it's bugging you or triggering you yes. or irritating yes. you. And <laughs> it's only when you can start to be a bit more objective as you look at it through the lens of safe to try, not through the lens of your own identity, that you can be like, actually, you know what? Like this would be fine if like it cost half as much. Yeah, or like yeah, yeah. this would be fine if it started next quarter. Or this would be fine if we added a resource to it. But it, but it takes work. <laughs> it takes work. <laughs> and that's the thing that I want to talk about, which is, how this relates to power structures and power mm -hmm. dynamics in organizations. Mm -hmm. And just to talk tactically for a moment, in the steps that you outlined, one of the things that's really helpful and really powerful and we use in all manner of meetings, not just in governance, is working in rounds. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there are a couple of reasons that rounds are important. I don't know, maybe we've talked about rounds on this show before, but one that comes up a lot in governance is that when a proposal gets presented, there are inevitably people in the room who were part of creating it or who gave advice or who are just very aligned because they're very close to it. And what usually happens in meetings where something gets presented for a decision is you have a mix of people who are like ready to rubber stamp it, people who didn't get a chance to give their input and advice and are like pissed mm -hmm. about that. And a group of people who are just going to ask like gotcha oriented questions. <laughs> and actually that's fine. But having those three types of conversations at once tends to take a really long time. 
And so I say this to say two things. One is rounds are powerful because they make sure that the airtime is shared and one person doesn't get to take up all the space. Usually that person in traditional meetings is the proposer. They spend all their time being like, I'm going to sell you on my thing. And there's not enough time for everybody else to weigh in. So it's useful from that perspective. It's useful from the perspective of giving marginalized voices the same amount of airtime as anybody else. And it's useful because you often get like the banging idea from some person who in the chaotic, you know, alpha meeting never gets a word in edgewise. Like usually in governance, I feel like the dopest input and advice are from the people that you know would not have spoken a single word in a traditional meeting. Absolutely. Yeah. I totally will buy that. Because again, like the, if you just measure the airtime in a traditional presentation, it's, 85% 85% proposer, 15% leader, everybody else is silent, right. basically. Basically. Um, and and also, you know, it's funny you talk about power dynamics because the there's another piece of this, which is the the I don't know if it's power or or perfectionism or what, but like the the kinds of proposals that come to that other type of meeting, that traditional legacy meeting, are polished. Yes. Like so done. Like we just, we thought of everything, we did everything, we designed everything, we hired an agency and they built this deck and like, it's all done. And if you don't love it, then you're going to, it'll destroy the whole thing because it's all perfect. Right. And, and the kinds of decisions we're talking about are like the decision before the decision, like it's lean paragraph level detail because we're trusting into the, the people and teams that will go do and go mm-hmm. try and go learn and go make. And so instead of like proposing the new ad campaign that has every possible detail in it and every ad and you have to look at it and approve each one, it's much more likely that we would just be proposing like, we're going to go do an ad campaign and these three people are going to be in charge of it and you'll never see us again. Right. <laughs> and right. that's a whole nother power shift. Yeah, it, it really is. And, you know, one of the things that we started doing maybe two years ago mm. was we we added a bunch of sections to the proposal template. And some of this actually came from military decision-making stuff that Ali and I used to learn about at McChrystal Group. And some of it just came from other places. And, and the reason that I point to this is because when you provide something written in text that is not a PowerPoint deck that's like all zhuzhed up and full of beautiful imagery. And you articulate things like what the problem Mm -hmm. is you're solving for, what the facts are, what assumptions you're holding, what constraints you have, what the risks are that you are articulating, what the dependence, these kinds of things, which we have in our proposal template. If you email podcast at the ready, I'll send it to you. When you articulate those things, you cut out most of the worst parts of those conversations. Yeah, yeah. Because you don't have to go through the whole thing of like, well, did you think about this? Well, here's a risk. It's like, yeah, I know that's a risk. I wrote it. It's the bullet point number three. It's in the risk section. <laughs> you know, or if you point out a risk in your reaction that I didn't think of and it's not in there, great. That's really mm-hmm. great. But like yeah, that's real insight. You know, again, the power shift of having everyone in shared written language helps us hedge against the people who tend to be very slippery in these kinds of yeah. meetings and yeah. tend to like stay vague. I mean, 
staying vague is a power move of the alpha male. That's a flex, man. Staying vague. And I've had one of the big resistors in in an organization that I've worked with around this particular topic has has continually pointed to time. He's always like, this takes so long. And then I'll be like, cool, don't don't do it as a process. Just let's let's hear what you got. He will take 30 minutes to just talk about nothing. And then the meeting's over. And I'm like, (laughs) we could have actually like we could have finished something and you could have walked out of here with something to make progress on. But instead, we're just going to have this meeting again. And Mm -hmm. that is like, again, that's the flip of judging a yoga pose you've never tried to just trying it. And, and and even if it feels bad in the moment, and like, I will tell you, being a proposer early on kind of sucks. Mm-hmm. It it doesn't always feel like a very supported role to play. Yeah, yeah. Until you start to view it as like a game that you can win, which is how I think of proposing <laughs> governance. But people mistake their discomfort with that with like ineffectiveness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all the time. And they're like, this takes too long. And I'm like, no, you just don't like it because you aren't good at it. That's okay. But those aren't the yeah. same thing. It doesn't mean the process doesn't work. It means you don't like it because you you haven't learned it yet. Well, and because, I mean, to your point about power, it is literally disrupting a power dynamic. And one of the power dynamics is it's a lot more fun for me to be in the meeting when I hold court. Sure. So, like, it's, you know, literally, like, it, it might feel longer to me if I was the leader before and I am now someone who's a participant in a process that's more balanced because, whoa, there's like stuff happening I have to listen to and pay yeah. attention to and yeah. step back from. And like, it's just energetically more work for me than just like coming in and being like, hey, sport and like man spreading all over the table and doing whatever I want to do. You know, that's just not, it's not as easy. And so, yeah, I get that. I totally get that. But yeah. But again, like the goal here is not to have uh, the most comfortable decision-making process for one person. The goal is to have one that re- results in the best outcomes and results in progress and results in learning. And so, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to feel different. It is. So when should one begin? <laughs> I actually like, I think you and I have talked about this before. Um, not on the show, but like, yeah. it feels to me like in doing emergent org design work, there is a place when governance starts to become an obvious need. And it is often not right at the beginning. So yeah. like, I'm curious, you know, in your experience, when is the moment to start to have some kind of standing meeting to be processing and consenting to proposals? Yeah, I think, I think when we don't have tools to support us in particular, this is hard. And so I have found, and I think you've been modeling this in your work, but like getting people on the rails of some of the basic principles inside the process before they use it is great. So like having another meeting that's based in rounds, having spaces where people are sensing and processing tension and thinking about tension, having spaces where we start to like talk about the idea of safe to try and how to think about risk. Like if all that's brewing first, then I think things start to flow here. And the idea of working agreements, I think, should be present from the outset. But the idea of having a space for governance and a dedicated governance process can wait. And so Mm -hmm. it might be that like, yeah, the very first meeting we have together, we 
define some very basic norms for how we're going to be together. And then we like very quickly decide if that's safe to try. And it's done very casually and without even really naming what's happening. And then, you know, we have, I don't know, a month or two of action meetings where we're processing things together in rounds and triaging and thinking about the nature of the future differently. And then things start to bubble up. I mean, it's just reality that like, we have role issues, we have decision rights issues, we have issues around strategy, like there are these things that just raise their heads when they raise them. And so my latest thinking has been just use the process when those whack-a-moles pop their little heads up Mm -hmm. and get people starting to play the game that way. And then when there's a momentum and when there's frankly enough workflow around governance, then you can kind of like name and instantiate a space and be like, cool, we do this every two weeks or once a week or once a month or once a quarter or whatever it is, because now we know what our flow looks like and we loosely know how to play. I I think it's really rough to try to just like institute a rhythm around this from scratch with no other work going on in the OS. Yeah, it is. It's very, it's very disruptive. It's disruptive sometimes at the beginning to the point of being paralyzing. Yeah, I think that's right. The the things that I would add to that uh, that I've seen more recently are if we're in a rhythm of good retrospection, governance mm-hmm. oh, becomes yeah. a pretty obvious need. Nice. Because we surface things in retros. Retros are always easy. It's like having a group of people talking about their lived shared experience and narrate that to each other is like yeah. tale as old as time. It's like what we yeah. were evolved to do. So retros are easy breezy once we have, you know, a minimum of psychological safety. But what I find if it's a newer team and they've had a monthly retro twice, Mm -hmm. they have come up with things that need governance. Stuff that needs to be addressed. And it's like, especially if you want to keep them in actual retrospection and not in solutioning, a really easy like move is just to be like, yes to what you're saying. Yes, we need to do something about that. And the place for that is in a proposal that gets processed, is there someone here who wants to bring that? And mm-hmm. like it that also just like relaxes everybody to be like, yeah. okay, we've got a we got a way to deal with this. And the other thing that I like to do rhythmically, and I've started to do this um using Trello, which is fun. So I don't know <laughs> if, if I've told you this, but we started facilitating team chartering in a very different way at our current client. And we do it in a Trello board and we do it in breakouts and rounds where they're editing each other's work. And it's really fun. And it's also very fast. And the design principle that I was going for was like team chartering, necessary, boring as hell. So I was really trying to find a way that made it feel like bursty and speedy and exciting. And so we came up with some cool stuff. What I've started doing is asking teams if they're going to have a quarterly meeting that's like kind of strategy, retro, mm-hmm. something that's a little bit more working on the work. Yep. We have a quick look at a team charter and I give them five minutes to just label anything that needs to be revisited. Yeah. And then some of those things we can just edit there because somebody has a decision right to do so. And some of those things become proposals. So yeah. I think those are also easier things to do first than yep. diving right into this. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I think, I don't know, the last thing I'll say, which is, I don't know if it's counter to what we just said, but it certainly is a is a branch or a, or a fork, is that because this is a practice and it's a method and it there are aspects of it that can be mastered and there's skills that can be built, I do think this is an okay thing to train. 
and yes. not just and not just sort of like have it happen and have it you know be on the fly and not really treat it as something that we want to build skill in. I routinely will start a groove off doing this process about nonsense well before I expect them to do it about anything real, just under the guise of like, this is a thing you're going to need. You're going to need it later. Let's just wait around in it a little bit. And then you just sit and think about it for a couple months or a couple mm-hmm. weeks or whatever, it m- whatever might be the case. And what I find is there's like a little bit of a, of a hidden pill thing here where if you, if you just teach someone to play the governance game based on like where they're going to go to lunch today in a setting, whether it's like a workshop or a conference or a hallway or a moment where they, where, where people are open to like playing a game. Um, if you teach them the process and then you just leave it, they will run into decisions where they're like, Oh God, Phil, <laughs> remember that thing that Aaron taught us or Rodney yeah. taught us that we like, should we do that? Yeah. And they, and they like, they can just like, there is this weird intuitive sense, even though it's difficult, even though it's frustrating. If people learn this in play, there is an intuitive sense that it's better than what they have that I do think if you just like plant the seed and wait, it will come back. Like people will be like, remember that thing? We should do that thing. I think that's, I think that's really smart. I should do more (laughs) of that. And, and the thing that happens so often when you do like more playful, just learning purposes governance process is I don't know if you've had this experience but like you get to the end and you're like okay that's it you guys did it, it. now go do it now go and they're like <laughs> wait like we like it's done like we decided and it's like yeah no it's yeah, now that, that it. is the decision the decision has been made we're done and they're yeah. like oh huh. oh oh and I think that is a thing that people reflect back to me later is the feeling of, of done the feeling of we are done with this now and we're going to live with it. And the next step would be a new proposal. Yes. Not another conversation. Not a relitigation. Like huge. Yeah. Yeah. It's a meat thermometer. It's that level (laughs) of insight. It's like, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) that is raw inside. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's just like knowing exactly what's up as opposed yeah. to like feel, you know, it, like it looks, is it done? I don't right, know. Like I Should I take we, it out? I thought we decided that in that meeting, but like maybe <laughs> exactly. now it seems How like they're still mad about that? it. And I don't know. Yeah. How many times have you heard Every like, I thought we decided that, right? Yeah. I thought we decided that. Good God. Let's put that to bed. <laughs> All right. I think we, uh, we've rounded the, the corner and we have to, we have to bring it home. We've done, done it. I want to do a whole nother episode on this. There's so many we should. to talk about. Okay. Part two. Part two. We'll go <laughs> Unless deeper. our listeners are like, you nerds, please shut up about it. We've had enough. <laughs> but I don't think you guys will say that because you're our particular brand of nerds. If we could humbly request, we would love a review. We would love your comments. We would love for you to forward the show. We are seeing some really increased traction lately and that, you know, makes our hearts flutter. So please share vocally and loudly and persistently. We appreciate it so, so much. Indeed. And as always, we will offer a tip of the hat uh, to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we get to help organizations around the world change the way they work and learn to do governance and play with governance and struggle with it. And you can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the ready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. <laughs>